Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stamel Major. In this episode, I'm going to continue with my look at the Safety at Sea course via the RYA's Sea Survival Handbook. If you want to get a copy of that, it's available on Amazon and the ISBN number is in the link on this podcast. Um, I'm just going through it page by page. I did the last time we uh, spoke. Um, one of my Patreon uh, supporters uh, contacted me and said, hey, great series, uh, really you know, want to learn this stuff, but are you going to <laughs> make your way through it quickly? Um, as quickly as I can. I don't want to make it just that the, uh, the, the channel then becomes completely devoted to the safety at sea thing because it's not always for everybody. I try and keep it as, uh, uh, as much variety as possible, but maybe we'll do it every other episode from here on in. Um, just to try and get through this quickly so it becomes a useful body of work. I know a lot of people that listen to this are going forward to the Newport Bermuda race um, and obviously any extra information probably very much uh, welcome. So um, say this is based on my experience of going and doing my safety at sea course. I needed to do that as the person in charge of a boat going to the uh, Newport Bermuda race. And uh, our course was presented at speed because it was for people who uh, already knew most of the stuff, but I did get a feeling that it's very difficult for instructors to try and include everything they would want to say when they were presenting these courses, because of course they're limited by the uh, the student's ability to, to be at the course. A lot of these things are two-day courses or day and a half or day courses, so hard to get through material. So I'm just going to continue grinding my way through the book here. Um, so this RYA book is absolutely fantastic. Try and limit the amount that I actually quote directly from it. The idea is that I can augment it. So if I'm going to uh, quote directly from the book, I'll, I'll tell you about that. But we're on chapter uh, one and we're on page eight. So it says here that uh, clear labels on lockers and a plan of where the safety equipment is stowed will save time and help reduce panic during emergency. Absolutely right. You know, we just had to mark up a load of stuff recently for our boat and it's so easy to end up with a permanent pen just kind of like putting the name of the boat on everything, just scroll it on and, uh, you know, quickly uh, hack up some kind of uh, uh, chart that shows where everything is on the boat, all the safety equipment and what have you. But when you start to do that, it does start to smack a little bit of uh, you kind of hurrying your way through it, which then makes me stop and think, what's more important than this? What what? what potentially that you do in the preparation of a boat could have a larger consequence. You could definitely affect the performance outcome of the boat. You could uh, make changes to how much people enjoy being on the boat by the way you prepare the boat and lay it out and set it up and everything like that. Different food, of course, different route. But the safety gear, there comes a point perhaps in a in a future that we don't really want to particularly think of, i.e. a future where there's an emergency going down, where the way you prepared the safety gear suddenly becomes like the most important thing in your life so yeah labeling all the lockers and things is super helpful for you um, getting gear out of your own boat obviously if a new crew coming on board you can say to them hey you know here's a chart here's the safety equipment layout chart and then each locker's individually got inventories on it as well um, the next thing that i like with this is it says that uh, it will it can potentially help uh, for search and rescue crews, if they come on board during a rescue and they need equipment, it helps them as well. And they weren't there for your safety briefing. So the labeling is uh, very important. Obviously, on some boats, you don't want big laminated labels all over the place. You can tuck them down behind the seat cushions or something. You know, you pull the cushion over and then it's got an inventory there for what's in it underneath the cushion for the navigator's seat, something like that. 
very easy to do that. And as soon as someone has realized, oh, oh they're all the labels behind the cushions, they can just quickly whip the cushions off and, and off you go. So yeah, labeling things up, very important. And again, a great opportunity to show people, friends and family that come on the boat, um, how seriously you're taking the safety side of it. The next section they say is that uh, make a plan. Yeah, this is good. It's, um, what would you do in a range of emergencies? How would you go about abandoning ship? What would you do if somebody went overboard and how would you recover them? These are the questions we should be asking ourselves all the time, not because we are trying to create some maudlin, melancholy uh, experience out of what should just be beautiful champagne sailing with friends. It's because we don't want that lingering background, kind of that trapdoor that's always beneath us that may open at any moment of we're having an emergency. You can't think properly in an emergency. You can't get your head together enough to, to calculate what you need to do next. And it's good to have a series of reactions to circumstances already dialed in and you understand where the equipment is and how to use the equipment and what's the next part of the process. And this is why in the military they'd say that you uh, train hard and fight easy, right? You try and answer all the questions that might occur during operational status. You try and answer those questions before you ever um, get boots on the ground or, or leave the dock or whatever. You, you try and um, ascertain what's the most likely vector for some kind of an issue for you and then you um, go through it step by step work out what the first uh, action you need to take is work out what's going to be the progression of things and then you have that already thought through in the back of your head every time somebody's cap goes over the side of the boat there's an opportunity there to try and do a uh, a man overboard practice. I was talking to this with my instructor at the weekend. Every time a cap goes over the boat, I always try and turn and make it a big thing. Because sometimes for sailors, you know, the cap is sentimental, a race cap or whatever it is. But also it happens completely out of the blue and it's legitimate. It's gone into the water. It's hydraulically locked in. It should be very, very easy with your um, system that you have on the boat to, to find a hat in the water and then easily get it back out of the water the only reason not to go back for it was that you've got some like terribly pressing uh, engagement, which could be, you know, at the top mark or at the finish line. I totally understand or a bar that you need to clear with a certain amount of depth or whatever it is. But if that's not the case, it's a fun opportunity to put your boat through its um, through its uh, stages, you know, through its uh, paces rather. And, um, and 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 yourself. And obviously, to begin with, you're probably maybe not going to be that good at it. You're probably going to miss the hat. Those cotton ones often do start sinking very quickly. But um Try and try and look at that kind of opportunity as something very, very positive to show what you can do with your boat um, rather than trying to uh, avoid uh, and, you know, <laughs> avoid showing the fact that you can't turn fast enough. You didn't get the man overboard button pressed. You hadn't thought about anything apart from what? What's that? His hat's gone. Uh, what are you going to say? What's that? He's, he's gone overboard, really? Yeah. So I would say answering these questions, make a plan, as they say, I would say play the what if game. Every time you're on the boat, say to yourself, OK, what if I go down below and there's one foot of water in the boat? You know, what's your next thing? You check where all the seacocks are. You're going to check each one individually. You're going to check behind all of the furniture for cracks in the hull, external look through, uh, check the prop shaft, check the, you know, that you have it in your head what you're going to do. Um, next time you go on the boat, think of something completely different. What happens if, and then, you know, there's a small fire in the galley. Where's the fire extinguisher? Where's a second fire extinguisher? How quickly do we get the life raft on deck? Playing what if is not a, um, it's not meant to drag you down. It's meant to solidify 
the foundations of safety that you've already put in place on your boat. It's not it's not grinding the day down. It's uh, it's it's making sure the foundations are good. Um, talk through your procedures uh, and practice them with the crew. Yeah, it's you know if you if you don't have a a permanent crew that are coming on board the boat with you, if it's people coming and going, it doesn't matter. You can still talk to other rational you know humans if they know sailing at all, or even if they don't. Like you can still talk to them about ideas as to what you might do next and you don't have to stamp authority over everything if someone's got a good idea of like oh well you could put the fire extinguisher here because that's where we used to do it at work that's legitimate you don't need to have like sailing knowledge for that or someone could say because people start to come to you with ideas when they realize you're open for you know open for business open for conversation they could say hey you know a handhold here or that part of the deck slippery or somebody who's not necessarily really knows your boat or really proficient in sailing can still have lots to add in so talking to your crew sharing plans with them showing uh, what you've got um, in terms of safety gear and a plan it could be super beneficial okay so next subject uh, moving down page eight here uh, clothing they start talking about clothing here and it really is really very basic to to safety on board the boat if somebody's getting super cold and they are starting to move almost towards hypothermia, their brain is not as able to make rational decisions as somebody who's comfortable and warm. That's just how it is. If the brain starts to cool down a lot, if it starts to warm up too much, it's not very good at making good decisions. Equally, if you're super uh, dehydrated or super overhydrated, if you are hyponutremic, you've actually watered your blood down, again, the brain's not very good at making decisions in that position. So the comfort of your crew the very basic requirements that they have is not just that you want to make them feel all warm and cozy while they're on your boat. It's also that you want to try and mitigate accidents. You want to try and mitigate things going wrong. And clothing is something where you can share with people a couple of real basic things and have them um, enjoy a much more uh, pleasant time on board the boat than they might otherwise have done. So all the background that I've got working um, uh, in the outdoors, uh, sailing, outward bound, whatever it might be, it's I've been lucky enough to do it during an era where synthetic clothing is available. And in particular circumstances, synthetic clothing has a real benefit. And I think a lot of people know this already, but it's, it's worth going back over because it digs into, you know, why some of this expensive Gore-Tex gear is uh, seen as being uh not as efficient as you might think. Let's let, let's go through. Let's break that down a little bit. Cotton as a uh, material is like the worst possible thing you can have if you're going to be getting wet. Cotton holds about nine times its own weight in water when it's saturated, and it is not in any way warm when wet. You know, it's just so saturated with water, and you lose um, body heat so much faster when you're wet. I think it's 28 times faster when you're wet than when you're dry. Um, making sure that you can get water away from your skin, making sure that your your, your clothing uh, sheds water as fast as possible is absolutely key. Uh, just on the side deck of the boat, when you go into the water, all those arenas, everything that's to do with sailing, m much of it is, is made better with synthetic clothing. Now, I wouldn't say it's the only thing then to have on your mind because equally synthetic clothing if you're wearing it overnight if you're wearing it for too long it gets quite smelly it gets greasy it doesn't um, do anything other than sort of smooch the grease around in your pores and if any kind of infection gets onto your skin you can get real nasty rashes and funguses and all sorts of stuff a lot of times I find those coming on quicker with synthetic clothing than with uh, a mix of synthetic and cotton 
Synthetic stuff though really starts to pay dividends when you're in a wet environment. It's part of a layering clothing system, which I think has become pretty much the norm in sailing for probably the last 30 years, certainly since the early 90s. You have the development of Gore-Tex and Gore-Tex starts to really change the way that we view going outside. Most of the previous types of waterproof fabrics that we've been dealing with in sailing were things that were absolute barriers, whether it be um, a rubberized PVC or some kind of waxed cotton or oilies, like actual oiled canvas. It was an absolute barrier to water. That means it was a barrier for water coming from the outside and a barrier for water coming from the inside, i.e. once you're wet on the inside of those clothes or once you started to sweat into your clothes, that water is then inside the clothes with you and the only way of drying them out would be to push so much heat into the system that you would actually steam it off and it would steam out through the uh, the vents the collar the everything else but if you've got your collar done up you've got your neck done up um, it's very hard for moisture inside those kinds of clothing to get back out into the atmosphere it's not just like wearing a, a t-shirt on a hot day where it all evaporates off it's not going to happen inside a sealed oily uh, set of oilies um, out at sea uh, in cold Atlantic conditions. So Gore-Tex is a semi-permeable membrane. Water vapor, water when it is vapor, um, can pass through the, the, the membrane. It's, uh, it's essentially you are creating like a filter. It, will, it filters out uh, water as a liquid, but it allows water as a gas to pass through. There's a couple of parts to this. The first part is that the membrane itself, as long as it hasn't been damaged by weird chemicals or some kind of particular detergent you put on it or something, it'll last a very long time. Early on you would get uh, Gore-Tex jackets where you had the Gore-Tex as a white membrane on the inside of the face fabric of your jacket and then there was a kind of like netting on the inside of that. That's what we call two-layer Gore-Tex. The more later development, which we see in all modern um, sailing clothing that incorporate Gore-Tex, is what we call three-layer Gore-Tex. It's got an outer face fabric, then the Gore-Tex is on the inside, um, sandwiched between another lining fabric, the kind of grey fabric you see on the inside of a lot of these things. At that point, that three-layer um, material has an outer fabric, the face fabric, which is designed to, um, you know, it's the color that you want it to be. It's got the branding on it. It's the the major kind of structure of the of the piece of clothing. Um, if it's going to be used in heavy offshore uh, conditions, it's going to be quite a stiff fabric so that the the material of the jacket doesn't just form completely over the body that's inside it and then just rob it of heat. It actually has some stiffness and holds away from the body. Um, and then the inner fabric is there to um, give a uh, hard kind of armored interior to the jacket so you don't wear away the delicate Gore-Tex. Each of those fabrics, each of those parts is um, porous to water, certainly as a vapor. The fabric on the outside is porous to water as a liquid as well. It's just a fabric. There's nothing particularly uh, clever about it. It's made waterproof by the Gore-Tex on the inside of that face fabric. And what this means is that if the exterior face fabric, which is chosen for its structural characteristics, is allowed to get completely soaked through and wet, the interior clamped in laminated uh, Gore-Tex membrane is not going to be able to pass water vapor through the material because it, the water vapor is not going to be able to get out past the liquid water, which is sitting in the face fabric warp and weft. Okay, So the outer fabric can hold moisture. 
the Gore-Tex will hold moisture back. The inner fabric also can pass moisture through. It's very, very thin. It doesn't really have the ability to hold much water. The way that we get past this is that on a three-layer Gore-Tex system, there's a, a fourth, essentially a fourth layer, and that's your DWR, your durable water repellent coating, and that gives um, an exterior waterproof shell to the fabric that's around the Gore-Tex, which means that the face fabric can't get wetted out. It can't get full of water. And that means that, that inside the jacket, inside the coat, if you're just wearing it like with nothing on underneath, your body starts to sweat. Sweat appears on your skin. Your skin's so warm that you start to kind of steam. There's enough energy there to actually steam off some of your sweat. It's going to evaporate. You're going to cool down. But when it becomes um, into a vapor, when it comes a vapor, it's then going to pass through the inner lining, no problem at all. It's going to pass through the Gore-Tex, no problem at all. And it's going to pass through the face fabric because the face fabric is not wetted out with water. The durable water repellent coating on the outside of it stops it from wetting out. So a very basic thing you can do is make sure that your own uh, Gore-Tex equipment or kind of any, any, uh, any, any patented uh, membrane which provides waterproofing and breathability, whether it be triple ceramic or hydrovent or Gore-Tex, whatever it is, it's good to have a durable water repellent coating on the outside and that's going to stop your outer fabric from wetting out. If your crew don't know this, if they've got old gear, if you're giving them old gear that wets out, that means that your expensive Gore-Tex jacket you've just passed on to them is little more than a set of oil skins. As soon as they get completely wet, the vapor from their body is not going to be able to pass through the Gore-Tex, and then you've got uh, just as wet a uh, you know, interior to the jacket as if it had been made of something really super cheap. So the outer shell, the Gore-Tex, gives us this incredible semi-permeable membrane when it's maintained properly, and then we can pick what goes inside that. Inside it, up against the skin, we want to have some kind of base layers. They've been made from something like merino wool or polypropylene, depending whether you want to get on a natural or a um, man-made fiber. Both have their benefits and their disadvantages. Some people cannot stand the merino wool. Some people can't stand the polypropylene. Whatever it is, whichever way it goes, you're probably going to end up wearing for way too long, and then they just all end up being called smelly hellies. Um, I'm sponsored by Heli Hansen. Their base gear is absolutely incredible, but they can't avoid the nickname that they got from their very original gear. It was you know, a new frontier and there was none of the uh, antimicrobial stuff built into the, um, the the gear that there is now. But um, yeah, those layers, when they stay on for a long time, whoo, man, they're stinky. But what they do is they insulate and they keep a layer of warm air against your skin. Then on the outside of those, we can pick another layer. We can go for something like a Polar 100 fleece, one of those little thin, kind of quite compressed, not too fluffy fleeces. That can be your mid layer. If it starts to get too hot then oh, sorry too cold you can put another fleece on inside that maybe like a polar 300 big fluffy fleece and then you've got your Gore-Tex on the outside the benefit of the layering system is that you can open vents and open zips and let air come and go and warm up and cool down and have some um, ability to to regulate your uh, temperature inside your clothing because sailing unfortunately is a sport where you tend to work in like very intense, very focused bouts for a short period of time and then spend a long time doing nothing. Kind of like an airline pilot. It's like a lot of excitement for a short period of time and then a lot of boredom for a long period of time. The benefit with modern system is that you can stand up to the, the winch or you can go onto the foredeck and start wrestling with a sail or do whatever it is you need to do. And 
you'll sweat and you'll get super, super warm, but then you open a few vents and those uh, base layers up against your skin will not hinder the movement of the water that is on the surface of your skin. It's gonna turn into vapor. It's gonna pass through your base layer without stopping. It's gonna pass through the middle layers, whatever they might be, and it has nothing in there that's gonna to wanna to slow it down because all these synthetic fibers, they are warm when wet. They can only hold a very small amount of water. Think of the difference between using a microfiber cloth to clean something or using a cotton cloth. The cotton cloth holds a lot more water. Sometimes that's useful, but if it's a t-shirt that you're wearing, it's very hard for your body to warm up all that water. If you're using a microfiber cloth, it's almost hard to keep the water in the cloth to do the cleaning job you're doing. And that's what you want on a piece of clothing, which is against your skin. You get soaked, you want it to shed as much water as possible, and then go back to being fluffy and have a kind of structure which is gonna allow your body to create a, a warm blanket of air wrapping around you inside the windproof, waterproof shell, which is your, your Gore-Tex or whatever it is, your outer shell there. So layering up, there's more about this on spartanoceanracing.com forward slash um, what to expect. There's uh, information there about all aspects of coming out on our boats. And for those who are looking at the summer season here, we're going to be crossing the Atlantic and going over to Norway and the Faroe Islands and Iceland. And what we're talking about here is absolutely essential. We're going to be in the open ocean and having the right equipment on is a difference between enjoying the experience and uh, just being thoroughly, thoroughly miserable. So let's have a quick look uh, as we go down page eight here in the book. What else do they have to say? Uh, do you have the right clothing? Uh, take extra and spare clothing. Yeah, definitely. The the thing with clothing when you're in the cockpit is that you can end up in a situation where you've got loads of clothing, right? And uh, you're feeling very comfortable about what's going on. But there is a, a, a dead spot that you can get to where you're in the cockpit and you realize, okay, I'm wet, I'm cold, I'm miserable. And then you realize I don't have anything else that I could put on from my bag. Like I'm wearing everything that's... Uh, wearing everything that I brought with me. I find that to be very sad. I can remember um, sailing from Singapore to Qingdao in 2010, 11, what it was, 2010. And um, that's a real hard piece of sailing up against the northeast monsoon there, like two or three weeks just beating and beating and beating up against really harsh conditions in the uh, South China Sea and then going around into the Yellow Sea. And uh, so this is kind of going... Uh, around the outside of Taiwan, just opposite Hong Kong there, and then across the top of Taiwan and, and cutting around the corner and into um, the Yellow Sea. And uh, everybody on my crew uh, had every stitch that they owned on. I had, I, I was sponsored by Henry Lloyd at that time. I had two thicknesses of Henry Lloyd um, base layers on. And then I had some uh, insulated Polar 100 insulated three, uh, um, what's it called, a Gore-Tex um, uh like a mid layer basically like a pair of salopettes that you put on under your salopettes if that makes sense so they've got polar 100 fleece on the inside and then they've got gore-tex on the outside of them and all of that goes on inside your sailing gear on top of your base layers then i had extra fleece on the top and then i had big heavy ocean waterproofs and a hat and gloves and scarf and all the rest of it and uh, it all came into stark uh, clarity just how much we were wearing we got into Qingdao we went through the arrival ceremony which was lovely and then they took us off all of the clipper crew you know 10 boats had turned up at 200 people and they took us all off to this um, sports hall and um, they put on food and they put on drinks and it was like totally awesome but you had 200 people who had been on boats for two weeks who were wearing everything that they owned because <laughs> it was like zero celsius you know 32 fahrenheit and uh, snow on deck for the last night of it it was bitterly cold and suddenly 
as these crews started to realize that they got out the cold and got into the heat, the, the, everything started coming off. <laughs> and as soon as the outer layers, as soon as those Gore-Tex layers were off, the smell, I'm told, was absolutely awful. I don't know, because I was, I was there and I was wearing my own gear and um, I didn't think it smelled at all. <laughs> but um, you could see from the, the noses and the faces and the quick disappearance of the servers behind the uh, free food and free meals that were there that whatever was that smell, it was, it was clear in the place. So um, having a complete set of gear, but psychologically knowing there's always one thing extra you can put on, even if it's like an extra little beanie hat, even if it's just an extra pair of gloves, even if it's some warm socks, something like that, that psychologically know you've got one other thing you could go for. And obviously the way you can do that also is to buddy up with somebody else. And, and I'll add also here the fact that when I go sailing and I see somebody and I look at their clothing and I know, okay, they don't really know that much about clothing. I start saying, you know, politely and positively to help them, you know, are you wearing this? Are you wearing that? Are you wearing the other? And when it becomes apparent that they have got like, jeans and t-shirt and nothing else I start sharing gear and obviously after doing this a long time I do tend to go to sea with a lot of gear because I know that other people need the help as well so um, clothing something to dig into so you can look at the Spartan Ocean Racing website and learn more there or online there's all sorts of different things um, the key is to well the, the other thing I say here is don't necessarily think that you have to go and buy all brand new sailing gear actually I'm very adamant about this because sailing gear is in one of those sort of it's one of those types of commodities that's very very expensive and it's clearly all uh, you know <clears throat> it's clearly all kind of aimed at a particular kind of market it all has to be brand new and swanky and all the rest of it but the actual thing that's at the bottom of it which makes your choices most important is often the materials and um, I've, I've sailed twice around the world and a little um, polypropylene jumper like not polypropylene I guess it'd be like nylon yeah nylon little nylon v-necked kind of tight uh, uh, a burgundy sweater which was my uncle's and uh, came to me through whatever he's passed now but he had this uh, little jumper which I started wearing at some point and uh, and I guess sentimentally kept wearing after that but you know when you look at it it's it's nylon it's synthetic it's got a nice uh, weight to it it's easy to put on it's easy to move in it's like it's got everything that uh, any other base layer would have do I have to go along and buy a set of branded base layer no I just got to work out what's the materials that's in this and then see if there's some other way I can get access to those materials and that kind of design. So sometimes it's a good opportunity to be uh, to pick something up secondhand or from some other source that is not necessarily a sailing source and then you don't get um, ripped off by the, the, the high prices which can happen of course with anything to do with sailing. Okay so moving on a little bit further on yeah they're talking about uh, different you know warm color warm temperatures cold temperatures all that kind of stuff Boots is something which I'll add in here. There's lots of different sorts of boots available now. I used to really, really like the uh, Hallie Hansen boots. They were big, thick heel on them and um, good insulation striking up from the deck and in cold conditions. They had a gaiter, so you got like a normal boot, then you got an extra fabric part outside the upright um, sleeve of the, the bit where you put your foot in on the boot. And that gaiter goes around your uh, waterproof. So you put your waterproofs over the boot, tighten them up, and then the gator goes around to create like a seal so that if you're in a situation where you get uh, flooded out, you're on the foredeck or wherever it is, and the water comes onto the boat, um, it doesn't all go up the bottom of your legs of your waterproofs. Um, the kind of boots that you sail around the world with are not necessarily the ones that you need to use for going out on a weekend, but people often have something that they, that they really like. The main thing with boots is that they have um, the little razor cut soles on the bottom of them and they don't have big chunky grips. Those those chunky grips don't work that well in the wet. It's why 
Uh, tires which are designed for dispersing water on the highway have those little sips, those little cuts cut into the sides of them. You see it on winter tires as well. And that's a very different pattern from something that's designed to claw through dirt and help you move over, you know, uh, off-road terrain or something. The boots that you take onto the boat, um, a lot of people for the stuff that we do with Spartan, they'll just bring like garden Wellington boots, you know, as long as the sole doesn't... Uh, um, mark the decks or something which hardly any of them do these days I think that's you know consigned to the last century having uh, uh, the sole of your shoes actually kind of leave skid marks on the on the deck but it's uh, the for the short trips that we do where people maybe only coming once they just want to seek the adventure and tick the thing off a bucket list they are they going to go and spend hundreds of dollars on a pair of once only boots no and they're not in a position coming onto the boat where we're going to be asking them to scale the rig but if you're on boats regularly, it's probably appropriate to have the right kind of boots. And they're going to need to be tough. They're going to need to be warm. I would say personally for me, again, you know, we've just talked about natural fibers versus uh, synthetic fibers. I've always used synthetic fibers on my boots. I know you can get the beautiful Dubarry leather boots and they're, they're a real kind of um, badge of of skill or badge of uh, uh, of kind of uh, sailorly intention or something like that. But ultimately the leather absorbs a huge amount of water and it takes a very long time to dry them out. It's a lot easier to dry out boots which are made from synthetic materials. And um, what have I got at the moment? I probably, oh, you know what? My boots are actually dead at the moment. So I probably would be thinking now to go and get something like, well, I've used Musto HPX boots are good. They've got a leather, but it's just a leather where the um, where they need to be strong, you know, and then it's rest of it's synthetic fiber and they have a gaiter, which makes them um, kind of close to like my dream boots. The, the earliest boot that I know of, which kind of still exists now and is useful on boats is uh, Le Chameau, which is a French uh, manufacturer, Le Chameau 1929. And they make a boot which every French sailor knows. It has a, a white, quite thick uh, sole and heel on it, a blue boot, and then a red uh, gaiter going over it. And you can see all French round the world sailors wearing them. They're warm, they're insulative, they're easy to dry out. They have the gaiter, like it's everything you could want. And they are a, a badge of respect or something amongst um, French sailors, but it, it's not international. But uh, they're a very well thought out piece of equipment. A normal plastic boot will definitely do for a long time. It's just in those wet conditions, it might you might find it skates around quite a bit unnecessarily. Um, there are also manufacturers like Zik, uh, Z-H-I-K, out of, uh, are they Australian or New Zealanders? They, um, they make boots which have the same kind of weight characteristics, I think, to like Crocs. Remember the, the expanded foam shoes, the Crocs? Um, they kind of use that technology in the way that the, the boot is constructed. So the boot is exceptionally light and has nice um, bindings on it to kind of hold it into your instep so it doesn't, you can't come off, all that kind of stuff. So I'd have a look around. In terms of sailing gear, when you know, I went to sea with Clipper, we were sponsored by Henry Lloyd. They're gone. When I went to sea around the world with Spartan, it was sponsored by Slam. Well, they're gone. So <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be sponsored by me. Helly Hansen are on the rocks financially now because they're sponsoring me. But um, have a look around on places like eBay and that. You'll find there's quite a lot of big uh, manufacturers have gone out of business. A lot of their new old stock is still on the uh, on, on you know online marketplaces to be gotten hold of. Um, People ask me about using uh, waterproofs which have been passed down from other people. It can work if they've looked after them and if the DWR coatings come off, it's easy to wash in a new DWR coating. You just add it in instead of um, uh, softener to the washing machine and then you put it through a tumble dry, um, tumble dry cycle or we put it out in the sun. That can revitalize things, but you know it does have a lifetime. 
but boots, as long as they're clean and you know there's nothing kind of no lurgy growing inside them, a set of boots can be passed on or used by a few different uh, folks. So if you're coming on a particular trip and you want to have a set of boots, you can maybe borrow them or use garden boots. But if you're going to uh, be going out and sailing all the time, have something that's going to protect your feet, keep them warm, and um, and uh, keep you as dry as possible. Obviously, deck shoes, very similar conversation. The ones that are intended specifically for sailing um, have those that razor-cut sole on the bottom of them. The thing for me is I personally, again, I never wear those um, boat shoes, the, the, the leather ones. I, I did wear them for years, and I always wear them barefoot. And now I have, like, bad dreams about scraping black sludge out the bottom of my uh, <laughs> leather um, shoes uh, because of all the dirt that was going into them from my from my feet. I spent a lot of my life totally barefoot. And uh, the other thing, though, is they always seem to pass all of their dye off onto your feet. And they're, again, they're wet. And when they're wet, they can't time up properly. It's like they're kind of like the shoes that tell people that you like boats. That's where I'd say those are. But I wouldn't necessarily you know, use them for sailing. Well, that's, that's half my half my listenership has just disappeared. <clears throat> okay, let's continue on. Um, talking about the sun particularly, that's the next part here on page nine. Um, I think we're all a lot more aware now of the fact that the sun can have a devastating effect. In the short term, with things like dehydration, um, uh, heat exhaustion, or even heat stroke, um, and of course, longer term, with scarring or with the very, very real possibility of melanomas. I was lucky enough to um, work very, very briefly for an inspection in the Caribbean with a guy called Tony Maidman. I saw his email go past the other day for some reason. And um, he's got a bit of a reputation for being a, a strict inspector for the CSA, for the Caribbean Sailing Association. But the period of time that I spent with him a couple of years back, uh, we got to know each other just a little bit better. And uh, I found him to be incredibly supportive and incredibly knowledgeable uh, partner in the endeavor that we were we were trying to uh, do, which was get the boat signed up for the, for the racing in the Caribbean. And he shared with me that... Uh, he had had a long, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this uh, further on, I think he'd want people to to hear what he had to say, um, that he'd, he'd had a lot of melanomas removed from his uh, body. And I think if I remember correctly, it was 70, 70. Um, he told me the story that the first time he knew about it was like in the 70s or something when he was a charter skipper. And he was basically in Speedos and a pair of sunglasses and a big mustache, I imagine. It was the 70s. And he was about to take a group out and they were doctors. And the doctors... Uh, asked him, hey, what's going on with that uh, with that thing on your back? And it was kind of like a, a wound that wouldn't heal on his back. He just thought it was a like a sea ulcer or just something that was, you know, he kept taking the top off or what have you. And he's like, yeah, it's nothing, it's nothing, you know, let's, let's get ready to go. And they were quite adamant and said that they wouldn't sail with him until he got it checked out, which is a pretty, pretty direct uh, piece of uh, intervention. And thank goodness they did because it, it was a problem and it had to be removed. And then uh, he then had this ongoing but successful last time I saw him battle with uh, skin cancer. And he had a lot to say about covering up properly from the sun. I know there's a lot of folks who are absolutely adamant you don't need to worry too much and all the rest of it i just i don't see many old ones that say stuff like that and i don't i've never met anybody who's had skin cancer who's like oh yeah it's just a one-off you know i'm still back out in the sun oiled up and it's just times have changed you know and i know that uh 
the for the longest time certainly in the uk looking bronzed and brown and all that stuff was very very popular because it kind of identified that you'd been able to afford to go away on a package tour to europe that's how uh it started to manifest itself in the 60s when suddenly people could go away to other countries and get really really brown and all the rest of it but for a lot of the world um that i've traveled through in asia and what have you being too dark skinned is looked down on now it's looked down on for the kind of the wrong reasons because it's a, a, a socioeconomic uh, issue but it is definitely not in vogue and whether we agree or disagree with the social structure that uh, means that the color of your skin within a single race is an issue i think what we can agree on is that um choosing to be a little bit more pallid certainly uh, helps you to avoid the rigors of uh, of any kind of cancer that might come from being exposed to the sun and of course the the clearest the clearest uh, uh, evidence of that is just compare the skin on your ass to the skin on your face. Like, look how, you know, it's it's tight, it's uh, it, it's it's young, it's, uh, it's not getting marks on it, it's not looking like leather, it's not as wrinkled, it's just, it's not exposed to the sun. So in the little um, illustration they've got here, they've got one of those caps that got the kind of veil shroud thing that goes around the back, that covers the back of your neck and your ears. Um, if you wear one of those and then you've got a buff, like the buffs that everyone's wearing now to, you know, as a, to, to hold back COVID because COVID, um, it doesn't go below five feet in a restaurant and it, um, it, it can't get out from uh, behind one layer of uh, fabric intended to make a bandana. But um, what it can do is uh, uh, act as a fantastic sunblock. If you've got a cap that has a veil down the back and then that light buff that just goes around your neck and covers your nose up, pair of sunglasses, your face, your nose, your ears, all of that stuff is protected from potentially getting super damaged by uh, being in the in in the sun. Same with your hands. I, I did a lot of um, long distance kayaking, and uh, for any of those who do, you'll know what um, paddle tan is. You've got this uh, tan that's like on the back of your hands and on the first uh, section of your fingers, because that's what's upwards uh, under the sun, and then the rest of your hands and the rest of your body is completely pallid because it's inside your wetsuit, your dry suit, whatever else it is. Um, it has a big effect. It has a big effect uh, very, very quickly if you move into things like uh, heat exhaustion, where you're just getting way too hot, not enough fluids, and your brain starts to um, become very uh, slow and sluggish. And obviously, you can get to a point where that moves into being heat stroke, where then you can actually start to have a stroke and start to have very serious damage coming from the sun. So um, when I see people who are wearing like everything that they could possibly have on to save them from the sun, I always think either A, they're a super nervy person, which we know that kind of happens, or they're someone who's super smart. Um, and you just have to kind of decide which one you are and if you think that's important or not. I've definitely increased it. As you know, I've got a heavily receding hairline and uh, I got it super badly burnt, the top uh, of my forehead in uh, the early 2000s in Thailand and now have two scars there. If I get too badly tanned, I have these two white patches that come up like above my eyes, you know, above the wrinkles of your brow and, and in front of your hair be, because I burnt myself so badly. So um, sun cream, absolutely brilliant. There are sun creams you can get which uh, you put on when you're not sweaty and it's like a, a liquid that dries off very quickly. They're good. They're sometimes not that great when they've been in the sun and been wet. Sorry, been in the sun. <laughs> they've been in the water and they've been wet. Also, if you're moving your hands across your skin a lot or if fabric is moving past you a lot, these things get worn off your skin. So they need to be reapplied. So you should be reapplying your sun cream every couple of hours, if not more. And you need to be aware of the factors. I had a lady who came sailing on the boat a number of years ago, and she told me that she'd done a lot of chemistry work developing 
uh, suntan creams. And the thing that she was able to share with me is that the elements inside a suntan cream uh, are quite active that absorb UVA and UVB, the things that protect you from the sun's uh, rays. They're kind of active ingredients that then become non-active if they if they're exposed to sunlight or if they're too old. So if you've got packaging for your sun cream, which is quite light in color, a white bottle, an orange bottle, a yellow bottle, imagine if you're inside the bottle in sunlight, okay? So you're inside the bottle and it's sunny outside. You can see some of the sun coming through, right? It's thin, light colored plastic. And what happens is if they are stored on the shelf for too long, even under the lights of a supermarket, they can start to lose their potency. So old bottles of sun cream on the side in the boat, ones that you leave there all season and come back to, in the end, you're going to put them on, think that you're protecting yourself or protecting your kids or whatever it is, and you're not. You're just rubbing moisturizer all over them, and then they're going to get burnt. So new sun cream, and uh, from her uh, advice, dark-colored uh, plastic will allow it to last a little bit longer. Um, yeah, okay, I guess we're done with page nine. <laughs> I told you, I'm, I'm, I'm completely un... Uh, apologetic about how long this is going to take. There's flipping hundreds of pages in this book. Maybe we'll go quick on other bits. I don't know, but uh, actually, you know what? We might go quick on this one because a big picture of a boat and then lots of pieces of equipment. So maybe we'll skip through a little bit on this one. Recommended safety equipment for the yacht. So where would you go to get a really good list of like how your boat's going to be set up? Like this safety manual from the RYA is excellent. There's all sorts of information here, but you could maybe... What I, I do is uh, I think that the Newport Bermuda race um, safety assessment is one of the strongest checklists out there for, for joining a, an ocean race. And um, they have that all on their BermudaRace.com website. You know, you don't have to be in the race to go and get a checklist and download it and then start looking around your boat for it. Um, if you want to really look at like the, the hottest qualifications, the hottest uh, uh, standards there are, then if you go over to um, the MCA website in the UK, um, the Marine Coast Guard Authority is the uh, government branch which looks after the coding of commercial vessels and operation of com commercial vessels. And they have a document called MGN, that's Mike Golf November 280. And that's everything that they expect to be on a commercial vessel, uh, whether it's near to the coast or much further off, she off sea or completely anywhere in the world. And uh, again, you can go through that checklist and maybe it doesn't like 100% uh, uh, you know kind of fit in with what your boat is but there should be a lot to kind of um, to look at there and a lot of questions to ask and then well why is it not like that on my boat why is it not like that on the boats I go on if that's the highest standard in the world why are we not meeting it and they may have well you don't need to have all that stuff because we're not going across the Atlantic but um, you know it's good to know and if you don't want to look at the MGN stuff uh, the MGN 280 have a look at the Newport Bermuda races uh, latest um, safety checklist. I think it's a, a really, really good uh, document. In fact, I will commit even to doing the admin of putting some links in the description for this podcast, which will take you to the MCA instructions or to the um, to the uh, ones for the Newport Bermuda race, because we're going through that at the moment as we get the boat ready for the Newport Bermuda race. And I think it really is an excellent checklist. Pages nine and 10 give a kind of exploded view of the boat with all the various different pieces of uh, safety equipment on board, fire blankets, extinguishers, life jackets, um, navigation equipment, electronic navigation equipment, anchors, all that kind of stuff. And it's a nice, um, what I love about these books, and I've always loved about the RYA syllabus for the Yacht Master and stuff like that, is that the illustrations really do help communicate a great amount of information. You're not just uh, ferreting through reams and reams of uh, paper. And as we go over the page to uh, 
um, pages 12 and 13, it's the same exploded diagram, but this time from motorboat. And obviously a lot of it um, swaps over between motorboats and, and sailboats. There's some areas where it's a little different, but um, again, great um, great look there at the, uh, um, the the things that you're gonna need to, to go out onto the ocean in a motorboat and be safe. Which brings us, are we actually at the end of chapter one? My God. We might get this done in under an hour. Um, the UK Merchant Shipping Regulations Class 7. Okay, let's have a quick look here. So, okay, so they're talking about the fact that, yeah, okay, I'll give you a bit of a, um, a heads up on this. So the situation with yachts and getting qualifications like the Yacht Master qualification or the Yacht Master, as it's also called, but from IYT in the US, they're very good qualifications that allow people to um, demonstrate in a, in a real world fashion that they are able to command a small vessel, um, deal with the crew, deal with the navigation, deal with safety, deal with all the things you need to deal with as a skipper. But until the early 2000s, there wasn't really any like there was no middle ground. You were either getting qualifications for small yachts up to like 20 meters or something, um, or you were getting qualifications for commercial things. And suddenly, like late 90s, you get big boats like Hyperion, which was one of the first super yachts, 150 foot. And it starts to get more and more common that people with yacht masters and ocean masters are suddenly going out onto the water and commanding vessels that are like, 50 meters, like huge 150 foot three deck uh, motorboats with you know, 5,000 horsepower on tap, and they're doing it on an RYA Yachtmaster qualification, or very, very little. And so they had to start to find a middle ground from the late 90s onwards. Some people were grandfathered in, but then we get into the uh, MCA, the Marine Coast Guard Authority's big yacht code, and they have a specific area now, which is all about qualification in that area. And if you want to take, you know, people often ask me, what's the qualifications that you need to do all this sort of stuff? I would say the RYA has some amazing um, resources that can take you from almost nothing, like you're just starting in this, either you've got skills, but you haven't got paperwork, or you just haven't been sailing before. You can get from there to having, you know, quite a meaningful, solid qualification in the uh, commercially endorsed Yachtmaster quite easily. Now, on the one side, I'd say, hey, that's great. Look how easy it is to get there for all those people who are passionate about their sailing. And on the other hand, it's a bit of a concern that people can get there really easily. So always, you know, kind of question the the background somewhat of someone who says they're a, a yacht master because it doesn't necessarily mean that they <laughs> like have fully mastered everything to do with yachting. But the UK merchant shipping regulations now will recognize the fact that vessels which are over 13.7 meters in left length that they they don't need to meet shipping regulations um, for big commercial ships but they do have regulations that they have to hit for for basic safety um, you can get exemptions on a few things but there's not much that's uh, they're trying to push on you which you wouldn't want to take to see it's not something to be um, you know pushed back against they're not like trying to trick you out and make you buy a load of stuff you don't need the people that go to sea commercially they're not really like kind of frivolous people who are looking to just do a job for job's sake they have the equipment they need to have um, on board and they look after it they maintain it they know the importance of it and the regulations around them which have been based in you know for hundreds of years from the uk uh, are very wise to uh, in the things that they uh, ask you to take so just a, a little notice there that uh, it says oh i'll quote here in may 2022 the owner of a privately owned 15 meter motor cruiser was prosecuted by the marine and coast guard agency the mca 
after the vessel ran aground on a breakwater for not keeping a proper lookout, which is a breach of the collision regulations, and for having out-of-date flares, life buoys, and uh, oh, sorry, out-of-date flares and life buoys that were in a poor state of repair and without lights and smoke floats. In short, the vessel did not meet the requirement of the regulations, and the owner was fined a total of two and a half thousand pounds. So, th- I guess that's uh, you know that's a, that's a note. There there are people out there for whom you know the choices you make on your boat are actually something that they cover in their professional life. And again, God help any of us if we're in a situation where something really badly goes wrong, and you're in court, and then you've been taking a really lackadaisical view of it, and end up uh, opposite someone from the Marine Coast Guard Authority or the U.S. Coast Guard who just doesn't see. Uh, boating from the same cushy, soft focus vignette position that 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 you've got used to. You know, it's it's serious business. So there we go. That's the end of chapter one. Like, wow, is that? Oh no, hang on. There's a bit more chapter one. Uh oh, uh oh. There's a few. Okay, we can do this. We can do that. We can do it. Okay, so life-saving appliances required on craft over thirteen point seven meters, but less than twenty-four. Okay, cool. So. Um, there is a list here of uh, all the different bits and bobs that you should have on board the boat. It's on pages 16 and 17, but I can tell you right now it's going to be almost identical to the Newport Bermuda checking list, and it's going to be less than the one that's on the uh, MCA MGN 280 that I mentioned. Um, one note here is about life rafts. You know, the life rafts that are on your boat, as I said, it's best to be there when they're unpacked and put back together. If the life raft looks old and knackered and the glue's going brown and bits of it that are kind of flaking apart in your fingers, then you might feel at that moment of inspection like, wow, I don't really want this to be my only option in the event of a very serious event where the the boat is at risk. But if it's just in its life raft case or in its valise or its bag, whatever it is, and you never see it, then you don't know if it's in that situation or not. very old life rafts can have all sorts of different um, standards that they're built to. You can have uh, the SOLAS standard, the World Sailing Offshore Special Regulations, the OSR standard, um, the uh, ISO 9650, um, and uh, ISO 9651 and ISO 9652. They're both small craft life rafts, but they have different packs of equipment inside them you can have a pack or b pack a pack is for more than 24 hours at sea and b packs for less than 24 hours which you'd normally decide that based on if you're likely to go out of range of um, a helicopter if you're more than like a couple of hundred miles offshore you probably want an a pack because you might be there for you know a couple of nights till they can get someone to you depending where you sail if you're going to be quite close to the coast you know they're going to come and get you relatively quickly but all those different standards most of it these days applies to um, the packing of what's going into the life raft the equipment that's in there the actual materials of life raft are pretty stable and 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 uh are standardized now and and have good long life on them or what have you but if you're dealing with an old life raft that you're just trying to keep in service and you don't know which standard it's uh, made to and you don't know how good the materials are in it you need to kind of take responsibility for that and realize it's not just going to blow up and stay up and save you just because you're you and it will be everything will be okay um firefighting appliances are also listed here oh we're going to get through this nice and easily what's on the next page care and maintenance of boat and equipment oh that's a good way to finish up actually okay i'll quote here for the safe operation of a boat at sea it's essential to inspect and regularly service not only safety equipment but also the boat's machinery structure and systems the smallest failure can sometimes be the beginning of a catalogue of problems that can lead to a catastrophe 
Okay, they've got some a long list of things here. Is the anchor ready? Is the life raft ready? Are the strum boxes clear of rubbish? Are the bilge pumps operational? It just it goes on and on for about 20 questions, and I think it's absolutely legitimate. The, the thing is with equipment on a boat, it's a very harsh environment, as we know, and whatever you do to try and look after the kit, you know, there's still going to be some way that salt's going to get to it, that the water's going to get to it, it's going to get mildew, it's going to start corroding as aluminum and stainless comes together, whatever it is. But the responsibility, if you have a boat, is to look after the safety gear as best you possibly can and to have all the equipment on the boat ready to go in the best possible fashion. It's not going to work very well if everything's a total mess inside the boat and only you as the skipper know where everything is and how everything works. You've got to have a kind of extra level of professionalism with this where you can run a relaxed boat and have fun and do all the rest of the stuff. But when, you know, as my dad would say, as it comes to a lads a, there's you know something serious about to go down here like whoa you know this is this is an emergency you, you can't be kind of you know well i think that the medical kit is there or maybe we moved it to the forward cabin it's just not possible you've got to look after it and that maintenance thing is so important the entire universe is in a state of atrophy where it's slowly breaking down over time and becoming other things everything on your boat is doing that and the boat itself is forever trying to take whatever opportunity it can get to try and get to the bottom of the ocean and your job is to make sure it doesn't go anywhere other than where you expect it to be and that the equipment that's on board it is in as good a condition as possible and if you're at a point where that doesn't seem like a kind of interesting uh, thing to do. If that doesn't seem like something you want to step up and have a go at, it, it might be that you're a bit burnt out with sailing. It might be that you're a bit burnt out with boats. You know, this is kind of like, this is where the rubber meets the road, the safety gear. If that doesn't hold your attention anymore, um, and it doesn't seem that it's legitimate use of your time, maybe it's time to step back a little bit from sailing and, uh, and do something else for a little while until you've got that critical thought process lined up again that allows you to recognize that some things have to be uh, somewhat sacred and the, the, the safety gear is is one of those things. So um, the, the the list which they have here on page uh, 18 and 19 in the RWAC Survival Handbook, well worth having a look at. Um, the bottom line of it is that you need to have like kind of a maintenance log and a maintenance schedule and you need to be doing it regularly and you need to be keeping things at a, a pretty high uh, standard. As we looked at that little example a little bit earlier on where the MCA, the Marine Coast Guard Authority, had prosecuted that chap for going aground on the breakwater for having out-of-date flares, life buoys that were in a poor state of repair and without lights and for not having smoke uh, signals. So do you have those? <laughs> I guess that's the question at the end of the day, right? Do you have any of those problems on your boat right now? Is it a kind of a, a wake-up call to hear that in a different scenario, in a different situation, if you had an accident and then you went into court afterwards to explain what that accident was, if someone's hurt or if a lot of damage has occurred from it, and they found out that your life boys are in the state that your life boys are in right now, have you got a problem? If you have, it's time to start to double down on your safety gear. If you can't answer the question, that's just the same as, you know, it would be luck if they're okay, right? So as I go through the Newport Bermuda checklist this weekend again with uh, the Maxi Osprey here ahead of the Newport Bermuda race, um, take this opportunity this weekend, go through the safety gear, like be friends with it. Yeah, it's expensive. It's expensive safety gear, but it's worth it. It's like an insurance uh, uh, policy, but 
you know, it's an insurance policy you can kind of put up on the wall in the boat. You can laminate it. You can show it off to people. It's a nice badge of honor to have of the uh, strength of your conviction to safety on your boat. And you'll find that you'll be more relaxed because of it. People will be more relaxed about you. And God help us if, if anything ever happened, you know, yeah, actually your gear would work. So if we get nothing else from the first chapter here, the introductory chapter to the RYA's Sea Survival Handbook, I think what we can take from it is that... Um, we got to wake up to safety gear and we've got to be super smart about um, um, what equipment we've got on board and do we know how to use it and what's the personal equipment in terms of clothing and stuff that we bring onto the boat that's essential also for our survival. So I hope there's a bit of a roundup there that's useful for anybody that's listening. Again, if you want to uh, get out on the water and experience uh, long distance voyaging, um, my company Spartan Ocean Racing is really getting out of um, of racing so much now. We're doing much more voyaging. I'm just I'm sick of going into races where we damage loads of stuff and uh, we're forever caught in this weird juxtaposition of being 100% behind sail training and um, giving people insight as much as we can. And then on the other hand, we're in races where we we're almost pushed to be too quick with the training. We're almost pushed to be too quick with the tuition. You know, you, you can't give people one-to-one when you're also trying to do the meteorology and you try and do the tactics and you try and do big sail changes and all the rest of it. So my heart is in the sail training and the seamanship. Um, if you want to get out and cross an ocean, yes, you can get all of the gear sorted out for your own boat or you can pay and have professionals like Spartan take you across the ocean. At the end of it, you just walk away from the boat. You don't have to worry about the berthing and the insurance and the, the diesel and anything else. It's the, the pros take care of that. So have a look at SpartanOceanRacing.com. If you're interested in that, the other thing we've got going on, of course, is the Rare Nautical Reads podcast. I've been reading the wonderful book, The Cruise of the Hippocampus, a strangely named little yawl, but we're just on chapter. I've got chapter 11 open in front of me now, which is the last chapter. I'll be recording that tonight, ready for tomorrow. Um, the Rare Nautical Reads podcast now got five different books that I've read, uh, all interesting books, all ones that are kind of difficult to lay your hands on. And I'm told that they are very good for um, sanding too, although that sounds like uh, you're just trying to find something which uh, overpowers my voice. <laughs> um, but maybe they're good for listening to when you look at safety gear. There's a book in there called um, Desperate Voyage by um, John Gladwell, and uh, that was written just after the Second World War. And if you ever needed to have inspiration as to why you should have safety equipment, I strongly suggest listening to that. There's a bit in that one where he pulls a 14-foot shark onto the back of his 29-foot boat, thinking that he's killed it, um, and then discovers that no, he hasn't. And the ensuing battle, which is for his life, with a 14-pound shark, half in his cockpit and half hanging out the back of the boat, is really something to to listen to. So if you're going to check the safety gear this weekend, I'd suggest something from Rare Nautical Reads. And I guess the last thing is we're going to be putting out a newsletter next week. We've been kind of concocting this for a while now. It's going to be called the Mariner Newsletter or the Mariner News or I can't, maybe just the Mariner. I can't kind of get my uh, head completely around that. But the idea with the newsletter is, well, it's twofold, I guess. On one side, we want to create a newsletter for sailors of all backgrounds, um, whether you're dinghy sailing or you're motorboating or you're out on a cruiser, a racer, a, an old tugboat, whatever it is, but something where a lot of information for sailors comes together in one place. There's going to be stuff which I've produced from the Mariner YouTube channel and um, podcasts and that, but that's not what it's all about. It's about drawing together the best each week from the internet. There's so many sailing channels, there's so much news, so many different newsletters and blogs, and there's so many things. So I thought if we could find something which you can sit down with for a you know, 20 minutes between other things going on, follow the links and uh, 
get abreast of some interesting bits and bobs. I'm going to try and include some uh, reports from the Marine Accident Investigation Bureau in the UK, which looks at accidents that happened at sea and gives a fair and non-judgmental account of what happened. A brilliant way to learn, you know, what can go wrong and then learn a little bit more about how to avoid that. We've got um, the, the kind of things you expect, you know, top tips in this and the five best of that. But uh, we'll be evolving it over the next months. And the commitment I've made uh, is to doing this every month. We've got a professional designer, Ray, who's uh, organizing this. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to try. We're going to try. We're going to try and bring that together because the second part of it is that in the end, if I can provide a good enough product to you, that might encourage people to support the newsletter and the podcasts and everything else in the YouTube channel with a $5 a month donation. And then we're going to take that and we're going to make that useful for getting uh, disadvantaged groups onto the boat. I've been talking about veterans for a long time and big plans to go around the world and all the rest of it. And actually, one of the easier things would be just to get people on board as soon as possible. Why delay for, you know, months more or years more for a good idea that's uh, you know around the world trip why don't we just go sailing now so i thought it's a nice way of doing it and um, the emphasis on me to provide something which uh, brings interesting sailing and sailing related news to you and then you can sit down and use that as a kind of crossroads to go out and uh, see what's on the web so that's coming soon the mariner newsletter or whatever we're going to call on that so a good roll up of things there um, there's another YouTube video coming out very soon. We've just filmed that looking at preventers, the kind of preventer we had to rig actually for the Newport Bermuda race. It's required by the race regulations. So we'll be showing that probably uh, midway through next week and uh, should be lots for you there. So have a great weekend. Um, it's pretty overcast and nasty here in Nova Scotia, but uh, it's been so beautiful. I'll, I'll let it off and I trust that more will be coming. I hope wherever you are, it's... Uh, good sailing weather and as you get out onto the water time to look once again at that safety gear and um you know see if you can may improve on the situation what can you laminate god we all love laminating think how good your boat would look with loads of laminated signs everywhere well okay maybe i'm not 100 right 100 of the time but uh certainly it'd be better in an accident wouldn't it anyway wherever you are and whatever you're doing i hope that you are safe and sound and i look forward to speaking to you in the next one cheers 